You're listening to episode 15 of the Journey to Launch podcast, how Justin retired at 33 years old and is living a $100,000 lifestyle on a $40,000 budget. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast with your host, Jamila Souffrant. As a money expert who walks her talk, she helps brave journeyers like you get out of debt, save, invest, and build real wealth. Join her on the journey to launch to financial freedom in in five, four, three, two, one. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the podcast, episode 15. I just want to thank you for joining me, especially if this is your first time listening. Welcome. And if you're a returning listener, thank you for coming back must mean you like something here, so that's a good sign. As always, I appreciate your support. Today's episode is gonna be a good one. I know I say that about every episode, but I really do mean it. But today, we're gonna be talking to Justin McCurry from therootofgood.com. And I'm asking these questions. Is it possible to retire early with kids? And how is it possible to live a $100,000 lifestyle on a $40,000 budget? And we're going to answer those questions with Justin because he has retired. He retired at 33 years old with three kids and he is living the life of his dreams. And through careful saving and planning, he's showing us how he managed to accumulate enough wealth to retire early. And what I really like about Justin's story is that he was able to do it with kids As you know, if you know my story, you know I have kids, and I know a lot of you guys out there have kids, and I just love when we hear these financial independence stories of people who have kids, because a lot of times you hear these stories of people retiring early, and they're single, or they just, they don't have the extra financial burden of having kids, so I'm asking Justin how he did that. Also, we dive into so many good topics here. We talk about how Justin went through college and law school with relatively low debt. And if you listened to episode 13 of the podcast, I actually had a caller, so a voicemail come in from Amber, who asked the question about going to law school and like considering that debt. And so Amber, I hope you're listening to this episode because I think Justin talks a bit about how he went through law school with minimal debt, what he did, and how not having a lot of debt allowed him to pivot and change his mind about his law career. And I think that's pretty important. So Amber, if you're listening, you know, hope you have a notepad and anyone else who's just questioning career decision or going after an advanced degree, I think Justin has a lot of good points that he mentions in this podcast. Also, if you want to leave a voice message, you can do that at journeytolaunch.com slash voicemail so you can leave your own question that I can answer on a future podcast. Also, some other things we talk about with Justin is how he's able to travel the world for practically free or low cost, even as a family of five, and just some of the foundational things he did to implement to reach financial freedom. Can't wait to get into all this great stuff. So before we do, just wanted to let you know that you can get the show notes for this episode at journeytolaunch.com slash episode 15. Anything that we mention here, Justin's blog, I will link it all in the show notes. 
Also, if you are listening in iTunes, please do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. It's really important that you do that, especially if you leave a review that really helps the visibility and searchability of the podcast. And if you're not listening in iTunes, no biggie. As long as you're listening, no matter where you're listening, I appreciate it. And tell a friend to tell a friend. It's always word of mouth that helps things get out there. Also, the wealth manual is available for purchase. And so if you're interested in a step-by-step way of how I built my wealth, how I'm building my wealth, and you want to apply it to your own life, you can check out the wealth building manual. It's for sale now at journeytolaunch.com slash manual. All right, so let's jump into this episode with Justin. I am so excited to have Justin McCurry on the podcast. Hi, Justin. Hey, how are you doing? Good, good. So I'm excited to talk to you because... First of all, my goal is to retire early, and you're living that life. <laughs> Hi, Jamila. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, I'm glad to be here, and I have a blog at rootofgood.com. I have a wife and three kids from age 5 to 12, and I live in Raleigh, North Carolina. I've, I, uh, I worked for about 10 years as a civil engineer here in Raleigh, North Carolina, before retiring at the young age of 33. Wow. And so that's what I really like about your story and your retirement journey is because you did it with kids. <laughs> and as you know, you're in the FI community. Um, a lot of times, sometimes we hear the stories of, you know, single people doing it or people without kids. But there's another side to it that you can actually retire early, even with kids. So we're going to get into that bit later. So you're tied at 33. Can you just like take a step back. And what were you doing in your 20s? Did you understand that you were on the path to early retirement back then? Like, how did you retire at 33? Yeah, so I I guess right out of college, I started working and made a pretty good salary as a civil engineer started out about 48,000 a year. And so and so I, I just naturally saved it and invested it just from being frugal and without really a goal or anything. This was, you know, back when I was 24. or So so I started investing and saving, and then I realized around the internet and found out about early retirement. And so that's really when the, the plan crystallized of, you know, I, instead of just saving and being frugal, I can be saving toward a goal. And that goal is I'm going to be able to quit work one day a lot earlier, probably decades earlier than most people can do. And I and your your background is you did go, you went through the normal years of schooling and then you did additional schooling. So you are a lawyer or you were a lawyer, right? I well, I finished law school and eventually took the bar and passed it. Uh, but I actually I, I worked as a, a civil engineer for my entire uh, short ten year career. <laughs> so okay, so let's go back a little bit. So you said you went to school, you went to um, law school. So I imagine that law school can be expensive. Did you graduate with a lot of loans? Uh, actually, it wasn't too expensive. I went to University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And so they I think they're historically the number one best value public school or something like that. So um, tuition was only about eight to twelve thousand per year. And uh, I, I had a roommate and you know lived pretty frugally back then. So um, so I had some student loans, but they were at very, very low interest rates. And I also made some money during the summers, ha- had pretty good summer internships. Uh, so kind of managed to do okay financially uh, during college and actually invested most of my student loans that I that I got that I took out while I was in school. So you invested them in the market. Yeah. So so it was um, it, it really 
wasn't too much of a financial setback to go to law school and then eventually not really use the law degree for anything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that's such an important part in your story because there are, I know a lot of lawyers or people who go to school for the advanced degrees and they graduate with tons of debt. And it just, I mean, while usually when you're in those careers, you, you tend, you can make more money than maybe the average worker. It sometimes some people don't recover from it. Yeah, it's, that's certainly true. And uh, there, there are a lot, I know a lot of my classmates that, you know, they graduated from law school and, and went out to make thirty-five, forty, $50,000 per year. And they're paying back sometimes six figure loans if they're coming from out of state. And, uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's a really, really difficult financial hurdle to overcome, to, to start out that far behind in debt and not really see a lot of, uh, benefit income wise, uh, from that graduate degree. So that's something, you know, too, for, uh, I would suggest to, to listeners, uh, think about the college major that you're looking at, or, you know, if you have kids, kind of try to steer them a little bit towards something that might make money if you're talking about taking out uh, big five-figure or six-figure loans to pay for an education. And so you graduated from law school. I, I think I read that like you realized really quickly that's not something you wanted to do. Yeah, it was. I, I had some summer internships, and just, just from that brief experience, I pretty quickly learned that it wasn't something I wanted to do for my career full-time. Right. And so then you pivoted and then went into the like engineering field. Yeah, that was my undergraduate. So I just uh, fell back on my undergraduate degree and uh, pursued that as a, as the money making career thing and uh, became a professional engineer, took the test, uh, got my license as a professional engineer and just worked and um, increased my income some. But I never really uh Never really excelled hugely at this. The salary wise, uh, I ended up about seventy thousand dollars a year salary when I quit working. So, and where were you living at the time of all this happening? In Raleigh, I, I've lived in Raleigh for um, almost my whole life. Okay, so it's relatively a low cost of area living, would you say? Yeah, low to moderate. I mean, it's, there there are cheaper areas, but it's um, it's certainly affordable, and, and there's plenty of um, pretty plenty of uh, pretty high paying jobs here. Right now, I have a question. So, what if when you went to law school, you would have you know not made the decisions you made and had a lot of loans or went to another school? Would you have been able to kind of pivot or give up the law dream as you did because you didn't have any debt or as much financial burden? It may have been tougher just because if, if you know if I had to pay back tons and tons of loans at a much higher monthly amount, I may have been forced to work harder and make more money in, in the legal field. Whereas, you know, I, I knew I could afford to live on, on an engineer's salary. So I had that option available as a, as a fallback plan. Right. Like I'm thinking that I'm, I wonder how many people, you know, who go for the advanced degrees or not even, it doesn't even have to be advanced because there's some people who go to school and still end up with tons of debt on, you know, a liberal arts degree. How many times that because of their debt, and if they might not even be happy with what they're doing, but they, it's almost like the sunk cost fallacy where they feel like they are already, they're already in it so deep that they just need to keep going. And then they kind of create a life of unhappiness because it's not really what they want to do. Yeah. And I think, I think people get stuck in, you know, if you have student loans, you have to pay back. You have to take on some kind of a career or something that pays money instead of maybe, you know, if you went and got a degree in, in art, well, maybe if you didn't have the student loan debt, you may have been able to pursue a lower paying, initially a lower paying career in art, 
that may have eventually turned into a much more lucrative career. But, you know, because you have that financial constraint of a monthly loan payment to make, um, you know, you may have taken a job as a administrative assistant or, uh, um, just some, you know, some office work where, um, it's not really in your career field and what you studied in school, but you have to do it just to make ends meet. So at what point, so now you're an engineer and you're working, did you know, like in your mid twenties that you wanted to retire early? What, led you down the FI path? Within about a year of finishing college and starting full-time work, I, I had, you know, I learned about the early retirement movement at that point, and, and that really became the goal was to retire early. So I, I started saving toward that and, and making plans in terms of what I was, how I was investing and, and tax-deferred savings and that sort of thing, uh, yeah, around 24, 25 years old. So, you know, I really, I think what helped me retire at a relatively early age was focusing on it um, almost right out of school uh, and, and being naturally frugal, but, you know, but really having that focus on early retirement as a specific goal as well. And so you said you were already naturally frugal. So once you did decide that, okay, I am going to pursue this goal of early retirement, did you do things, were you more strategic or intentional about how you invested? In, Investment-wise, yes. I think I got, I think I was very frugal in the investing too. And I, I switched, I used to have a, invested with Edward Jones, a full service brokerage firm, and they just, they charge a lot of fees. And so I switched from that to um, to Vanguard, which they offer index funds that charge uh, a fraction of a percent management fees, uh, much much lower cost investments. And so that that was really you know I pivoted from the 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 high cost, not really thinking about it too much investments to intentional low cost index fund, keeping a very close eye on what I'm paying for management fees. And what I liked, so I, your your blog, which I'll definitely link in the show notes, you have a page that kind of goes over how you retired early and you had some basic foundations of what allowed you to do it. And I thought they were very um, good. And I wanted to kind of just touch on some of them. And one of the things you mentioned was optimal spouse selection. Can you talk a little bit about that? <laughs> it sounds very engineering, yeah. but uh, yeah. So um, I think just having having a a spouse that is financially compatible with you, where you're on the same page and you're working together as a team, uh, that's that's what I've had in my own relationship, and and I th- I think that certainly turbocharged our our joint path to financial independence and early retirement, uh, just because we're working together, and and I I kind of. I had a joke before at some point I, I told someone and the gender roles could be reversed, but I told someone else, you know, she can spend it faster than you can make it. If, if you have an incompatible financial relationship where your other half ends up spending money more faster than you can earn it. So no matter how much you earn, you know, it is possible for your spouse to spend even more than what you make. And that's how you end up with, with credit card debt many times. And it, it, I've, you know, there's been situations where it's the guy that loves technology and sports and, and cars and everything else. And he's the big spender and, and the, 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 the wife is the one that's like, no, you need to, we have a budget, you know, you have to stick to it. Uh, but I think, I think having that where, you know, we were both kind of naturally frugal and we we're both on board with this idea of sometimes postponing new things like, like a brand new car. Do we have to do we want a brand new car or do we want to be able to have freedom in our 30s to not have to work anymore? Uh, you know, which one do we value more? So it's really a choice of what do we value more? Is it, you know, is it that n- nice new shiny car or is it early retirement? And we chose early retirement. Right. And I mean, I talk about that all the time, too, because 
you know, my husband and I, he is not as, I mean, he is, luckily I feel, you know, I definitely did the optimal spouse selection, but he is maybe not as frugal and money-minded as me, but he is very willing um, to come on the journey and learn. So yeah, it's so important, like you said, when you can sit down with your partner and figure out what really matters um, the most. And yeah, that's good that you were able to do that. So did you have an idea? Like you said, she was naturally frugal too. Did you have money conversations beforehand or it just so happened that you picked her and she happened to be frugal? I think I think more of I picked her. She happened to be frugal and it worked out because we were both frugal. And I think an example of that would be uh, I'm pretty sure I used a buy one get one free coupon on a a pretty early date in the relationship. <laughs> and so that's probably the litmus test for um, do you have a frugal significant other is if you can pop out a buy one get one free, um, you know, at some point in the first six months of a relationship. Right. Uh, or maybe today, you know, a Groupon or a, I don't even know, Living Social, you know, some something like that uh, these days. But just having that conversation of, you know, it's OK to do something like using a coupon or, or you know, going during happy hour or going in a lunch special instead of dinner, being smart about money. I, th- I think having, you know, having those kind of conversations at that level to at least ha- to show that you're with someone that is is dialed into um, the fact that money doesn't grow on trees and that it's a limited resource and that, you know, you, you, you can make intentional choices about it, smart choices about it. And then another thing you said was good job with benefits. So that's kind of pretty self-explanatory, but you would credit then your job as an engineer. And um, I didn't, I don't remember what your wife did, but those as big factors in being able to do this. Yeah, yeah, we uh, we both had good benefits. Her benefits actually were better than mine. The health insurance was uh, almost free. Uh, like I think the premiums were about four hundred per year. So so that you know that saved us ten or fifteen thousand per year because my benefits were the health insurance benefits weren't that good. But we had you know we had tax deferred savings plans. Uh, both companies matched our four hundred one k contributions up to four percent or I think my wife got five thousand per year. So, you know, pretty generous benefits package on top of pretty good salaries. We never made a ton of money, but you know, between forty and seventy thousand throughout our careers for each one of us. Uh and yeah, and I was an engineer. My wife worked for an investment bank, but not not Wall Street salary levels. She was here in Raleigh, uh so it was more of a back office support role. But, you know, we had probably average to above average salaries for for college graduates but our you know like I said our, our salaries started out at a combined about eighty eighty five thousand dollars when we finished college and then right before we quit working we capped out at about one hundred and forty thousand combined income per year so um, neither one of us ever broke six figure incomes but you know we did have solid jobs never suffered from long term unemployment you know never had to do temp work or contract work so uh, that certainly helped just having a, a constant, reliable income stream. Right. And I like that you just mentioned, you know, you guys never really broke the six figure mark, but you're able to do what you did. And I feel like a lot of people maybe are in a situation where the income is, you know, not six figures and they don't understand how they can do this. But one of the ways you did it was another one of your tenements of being able to retire early was not paying taxes, but the legal way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the legal way. Yes. Um, yeah, so our income was, you know, it kept going up, but we, we took steps to minimize uh, the tax burden just from smart, effective tax planning. And uh, primarily that was uh, participating in those retirement savings plans, 401k, um, IRAs, 
Uh, we had a health savings account through my wife's employer. We maxed that out. And so maxing out all these tax deferred accounts and it, it, it saved us, I think I added it up and it saved us about $20,000 per year, all these different tax breaks from uh, retirement savings, um, childcare tax credit. We have three children also, which obviously that saves us about $5,000 per year on taxes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that obviously don't have kids just to save taxes, but it, it certainly helps out. So we, we ended up, um, making, you know, $140,000, $150,000 per year, including some dividend income. And we paid $150 in tax at our, at our peak earnings year. And which is just phenomenal that, you know, we had a combined income over, over a hundred thousand dollars, but our tax burden was only $150. So that was sort of, you know, symbolic to me that if you can manage to do this, keep your tax burden low, those are all those dollars that you're saving on taxes. Those are all dollars that can go directly back into your own investment accounts to, to grow even more for you. Um, and that was, you know, that that certainly helped us on our path to financial independence as well. Right. And I definitely like that you stress that because a lot of people um, or maybe just some people don't understand the importance of being tax efficient. And how, you know, what you don't give to Uncle Sam, you can invest and have grow. And I know a lot of people kind of think, okay, but, you know, I'm going to pay taxes on it when I take it out. And I don't want to have to worry about that at a later date. But as we'll get into later, you are able to withdraw on your pre-tax retirement accounts um, in creative ways where you're not necessarily, you know, paying the most in taxes. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And so another thing you did or you said was a permanent starter home. And I really like that. So can you go into that a little bit more? Yeah. So uh, right out of school, we bought a house here in Raleigh that was um, not in the best neighborhood, not, you know, it was 1800 square feet. So certainly a reasonable house for two people planning to have a few kids soon. Not huge, not, you know, not a half million dollar house. Probably, you know, with, with our salaries coming out of college, we probably could have qualified for a half million dollar house or more because interest rates were pretty low and credit was easy back in 2004, 2005, back in that time frame. But after we bought the house, we, we kind of moved in. We're like, okay, you know, it's a starter home. It's, it's nice and everything. And, and the idea was you make more money. One day you move up to a bigger house. Well, we, we thought about it and we're like, this place is okay. You know, it's, it's pretty nice. It has everything we need. Uh, we have many bedrooms here, you know, plenty of room for the kids. So we just said, why not just stay here? You know, why, why not just keep the small mortgage we have, keep paying it and eventually pay off this house and just keep living here. So that's that just sort of turned into, um, you know, buy a starter home and live in it forever. With the starter home, what I like is that a lot of people, it's almost, you know, that lifestyle creep, that lifestyle inflation. The more you make, it's like the more you feel you need to upgrade and then the more space you feel like you need. But if you're really able to live like you lived when you first graduated or if you, when you were living in college, but you're making a better income, you can really stretch your dollar far and come out ahead. Yeah, that's and that's, you know, we, we probably live like we did in college. Um, we had a two bedroom condo in college. And so now we have four bedrooms, but we have more kids now so that they fill them up. But but uh, yeah, I kind of say that sometimes is that we're still living kind of like we did in college with you know, a, a larger budget for some things and a lot more financial security, but, um, but we, we still pr- live pretty basically. And, you know, not, we're not living a, a, a huge high spending, luxurious lifestyle. 
you also talk about being smart with your investments. So can you talk about what you invested in primarily while you were saving on this journey? Yeah, I mean, in terms of smart investments, I think that the key is just keeping the expenses low on your investments and, you know, focusing on that more so than trying to time the market or find the, the best performing fund. I'm a big fan of index funds, uh, Vanguard, yeah, that's, you know, that's the, the go-to place, but there's lots of other companies out there now that have iShares, uh, Schwab, Fidelity. They all have some very good, very low-cost index funds. Looking at the expense ratio is key there. So if you have a 401k, uh, take a look at the investment options and focus on the expense ratio within the 401k. If you want to try to find the uh, least expensive investments, they'll probably end up being the best overall for you during the long term. So that's that's really what I focused on was investment costs. Now let's kind of talk about kids because another thing people will say is that, okay, how can I possibly do this with kids because kids are so expensive? And I myself have two. And I, I mean, you know, yes, daycare, if you have to put your kids in daycare and schooling, and you know, depending on what type of schooling you put them through can be expensive. But I found ways in which, you know, it's, it's, it's not been as costly as maybe another person has to pay because we don't we we kind of don't subscribe to the whole we're going to buy our kids clothes every quarter i mean our second we have two sons so our second son wears a lot of hand-me-downs and you know we're okay with that so how how did you go about raising your kids or having your kids not affect your financial journey a lot of the same stuff you mentioned Um, we have two two older daughters they're one year apart so you know lots of hand-me-downs there all of our extended family live here in Raleigh, so we actually got a lot of hand-me-downs even from family here uh, here in Raleigh that had kids that were one or two, three years older than us, than, than our kids. Um, so that, you know, for material possessions, a lot of it was hand-me-downs or, you know, thrift shop, free or cheap stuff, baby supplies. We, we spent a little bit on on buying the the crib and mattress and that sort of thing, but but we used it for the same one for all three kids. And so we got a lot of the use out of, you know, buy one thing and use it three times for, for the kids. And the other thing, yeah, we just, we don't really, you know, we don't feel like buying more stuff is equivalent to, to giving them more love. I mean, you, you can love your children without buying them tons of stuff. So I, I think, I, th- I think it just doesn't really cost a whole lot to provide the basics for them. And a lot of what you end up getting is just pure luxuries, which, you know, you can, you can choose to get some to some degree, but. But yeah, we, we really haven't found it to be that expensive. One area we definitely, I guess you could say lucked out on, but it was more of an intentional decision. Childcare for us was very affordable because we, my mother-in-law is here in town about two miles away. So she actually watched our kids for us and we, we gave her some, uh, a monthly payment, but it wasn't anywhere near as much as uh, private daycare would have been. So, you know, even if we're paying her several hundred dollars per month for childcare, it's much less than what daycare would have been. So so we, you know, that obviously saved us a lot of money there. Public schools is a big one. Uh, we send all three of our kids to public schools and chose to live in an area where the schools are, are reasonably good and we don't need to pay money for private schools. So that's another big factor that, you know, we're saving six to six to $20,000 per kid versus uh, paying for private schools. And as they get older, because I always, I always hear that um, when they get older, there are all these after school activities and sports. And so you haven't really encountered that with your oldest yet? Not yet. The oldest just started seventh grade, and which is the first, the first time you can participate in after school sports. And so far, she hasn't really done a whole lot of organized after school stuff. 
they're pretty involved in academics, which is, you know, during the school day and then coming home and doing homework. And then we, we do stuff independently on weekends and with, with family and friends and that sort of thing. And, and I'm actually a big fan of um, not having too many organized activities. I, I feel like a lot of the kids today are, are so overscheduled, it's, it, it drives them crazy, uh, sometimes literally crazy. So far, we haven't really spent a whole lot on that. You know, we've done some classes in the past and, and some summer camps and uh, that sort of thing. But but they're, you know, they're busy enough with school and some other activities that are kind of one-off things during the school year. And then we, we travel a lot during the summer. So there's not a lot of time even to, to get involved in, in activities here locally during the summer. And you mentioned traveling, and I know that's a big part of your just enjoyment with your lifestyle. And you guys chose to continue to travel. You traveled while you were saving up to retirement, but you travel a lot now. Can you talk about why you prioritize traveling and how you travel for barely almost nothing? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, yeah, we, we traveled quite a bit when we were saving for early retirement. Um, that Probably the biggest uh, constraint on travel was was kids more so than than money, uh, well and time off from work obviously. But but yeah, we we had, we took a few international trips while we were still saving for early retirement. But it's I don't know we've we've always uh, we've always enjoyed it. We went on a big six week trip uh, back in college when we were broke college students. You know, shoestring budget, backpack travel kind of stuff. Back when when we met in college, right after we started dating and. And uh, we've been trying to go places ever since. And, uh, you know, life gets in the way sometimes, but, but we're back to it now. Past four years, we've taken pretty big international trips uh, during the summertime for uh, three to nine weeks each trip. We've been to Canada a few times. One of them was a road trip through the U.S., Mexico for seven weeks. And then we just got back from Europe. We were there for nine weeks this past summer, so so we're, we're traveling a lot. We're what's kind of interesting is we're not spending a ton of money. We spent ten thousand dollars. Well, we budgeted ten thousand dollars. We ended up spending closer to nine thousand dollars for our nine weeks in Europe, which is uh, which is a lot of money if if you don't have much. But if you if you're paying for nine weeks in Europe, nine thousand dollars is not really that much for nine weeks in Europe. And so part of the savings was we do uh, what's called travel hacking, um, getting a credit card with a big sign-up bonus for airline miles. So we've been saving up some airline miles for a couple years, and we actually got five round-trip tickets to Europe for almost free. We had to pay about $50 in tax taxes per ticket. So for a couple hundred dollars, we flew to and from Europe from Raleigh. And then actually got a one-way ticket within Europe from uh, Portugal to Spain, a free ticket there as well, using airline miles. And so our, our, our transportation costs were, were very minimal. We, and we booked it so far ahead that we were able to book some early bird specials on um, all the trains and buses in Europe. So we were paying usually 40 to $60 U.S. For, uh, for, for a total for five tickets between um, two European capital cities. So maybe a four or five hour train ride, we're paying eight bucks a ticket, roughly. So just phenomenal deals there, just because we have some flexibility in terms of when we're traveling, we booked way ahead of time because we knew we can commit to these dates. We don't have any constraints during the summertime and uh, just taking it nice and slow. So we, we would rent, typically rent an apartment for a whole week through Airbnb. And uh, renting by the week means you're paying much, much less per night than if you're booking a hotel. And, and for the five of us, it probably would be two hotel rooms. So, so we were able to book one apartment versus two hotel rooms, which means we're paying 
Uh, I think we paid an average of $80 a night for, for typically a two bedroom, sometimes a three bedroom apartment versus we probably would have paid closer to $200 or $300 a night if we were renting two hotel rooms. You know, I think the key to what you said is you delayed gratification and you planned. And so it took you a few years maybe to build up the points to travel for free or to get the free flights to Europe. But you, you know, you had a plan and you start, you saved and it wasn't something that you said, okay, I have to do this right away. You, you were able to delay that. So I think that's important. Yeah. And I think, you know, we, we thought about traveling to Europe earlier while we were still working, but it would have been, you know, a, a one week or one and a half week trip probably. And, and with kids, it would have been, you know, pretty expensive to fly over there if we were paying cash for the airline tickets staying in a hotel every night, going out to eat every day, um, very constrained in terms of what, what, when we can schedule things, we may have had to done, do an organized tour. And so we, we probably would have spent maybe $9,000 on a one week trip. Whereas, you know, now we can, because we're not in any big rush, we can go relax, take our time, enjoy the scenery and, and spend closer to about a thousand dollars per week. And, and so, yeah, it was that idea, like you said, delayed gratification, we knew we could pay for it. We could, you know, we could afford it earlier, but it would just be a much shorter trip. And so, by delaying it, we were able to save and economize much, much more, and probably have a much more enjoyable trip because we had we had plenty of downtime. You know, it was, it was nice to be able to just relax and, and enjoy the where we were for the day instead of knowing, you know, okay, we have to get on a train again tomorrow and go to the next city, and then go to the next city, and go to the next city, and then fly back home. I think that's, I mean, because I, I know when a, a lot of people, what they want to do is travel. And so what we kind of settle for, if you're working, is like these short, compact vacations where they're going to be more expensive because, you know, you have to travel within a certain probably period. And then maybe you're not as creative because you have less time. So you have to kind of go on the more scheduled tours, which are more money. So, yeah, I think those are like just good points for someone who maybe is looking to add traveling into their lifestyle or is thinking about retiring, how they can start to think about what they can start doing to save up to have a nice travel lifestyle, even in retirement. Yeah. And we, and we intentionally budgeted for it and actually budgeted uh, a, a quarter of our budget is travel. Uh, so uh, we budget about $40,000 per year in spending and 10,000 of that is travel. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, we, we put our money where our priorities are and, and, a big priority is is travel. Mm-hmm. Now you just said you spend about forty thousand dollars a year, and you know for some people, maybe forty thousand dollars does not seem like a lot, and they they say to themselves, "Well, I don't really feel like I can maybe live a good lifestyle with that." But you say that you feel like you're living a hundred thousand dollar lifestyle for a forty thousand dollar budget. Can you just touch on that and how you do that? Yeah, sure. Um, it, it's it's something that kind of struck me when I started looking at w- when someone says, "Well, I make a hundred thousand dollars per year, and I'm I'm just getting by. I don't see how you can live on forty thousand dollars per year and do what you're doing." And and I've seen it over and over where you know they're they're surprised by, well, how can you possibly go on a nine week trip to Europe on forty thousand dollars per year? And it, and it kind of goes back to what I was saying about it would have cost us nine thousand dollars to go on a one week trip while we we're working. Because it would have been, um, we would have had to schedule it around whenever we can get off work, and it would have been compressed into a shorter period, and everything's more expensive, and we have to, um, you know, we we just can't economize in as many ways as we can now. 
so we have that luxury of of time to to economize more in terms of like while we're on the trip, but also in terms of planning it and and thinking about it. Um, but but so many other ways too. Uh, our taxes now because our income is is lower now that we're not working. Our taxes are are very very low still. Uh, most people that are earning a hundred thousand per year, they're you know they're paying several thousand or possibly tens of thousands of dollars in taxes. Another way is we we don't have a mortgage payment anymore, so we paid that off several years ago. Most people have a housing expense, you know, um, eight hundred, thousand dollars, two thousand dollars sometimes mortgage payment every month. So you know that's an expense that we don't have anymore. We have a we have a car, but it's paid off, so we don't have a car payment. We don't have to drive to work anymore, so even our our gas expenses, our car maintenance expenses. They're very minimal. It's mostly just from the road trips we take. So you know, it's mostly a vacation expense, more or less, when we're when we're dealing with that. So I think getting rid of the jobs it, it eliminates so many of the expenses that are associated with working that that are sort of hidden in your lifestyle. You know, uh, even even wardrobes for work. We're, you know, we were never really big dressers for work or anything. But I, I mean, I know I've seen. My wife's bill for uh, the, the shoes that she had to buy for work, and, and that's you know sixty or eighty dollars every so often that she has to replace um, shoes and you know other business attire. You know now it's it's shorts and t-shirt if we want to every day. Uh, it's just uh, it's just work lunches. You know they're, they're, we don't have to go out to lunch with co- work colleagues. We still go out to lunch here, but but it's just there's a lot of expenses that went away when we quit working. Um, the freedom to the time freedom to, to be able to schedule out when you want to do things. We can pick times that are cheaper than others. We can go on like cruises. We, we, we go on last minute cruises that are much lower rate and during the off season because we don't have to request ahead of time to get off work. We can just you know pack up and go as long as we can work around the kids' school schedule. So just a lot of small ways that add up to really, really big savings that you know we're spending 40000 per year, but we're, we're doing it in such an efficient manner that it, it looks a lot more like what someone earning $100,000 per year, it looks more like what their lifestyle looks like. Would you credit that to also being able to live in a low to middle cost area of living? Like, is it harder, you think, for someone like myself? I live in New York City. Um, oh, yeah. Living to do that? Yeah, I, I, obviously. Yeah, I think I think that's without saying, um, you know, uh, uh, if you if you are living on a hundred thousand in New York City, it's going to look very different than if you're living on a hundred thousand here in Raleigh. You know, from free parking here, there you know, it's cheap to have a car here. It, it, a big house is is very very affordable here. Um, or you know, you could live in a relatively small place and and deal with transit or bike everywhere and it, like live the New York lifestyle. But on the Raleigh budget, and you could just save tons and tons of money. I think it's yeah. I mean, it, it's it, it really depends on your cost of living in the area that you're in, and that really drives you know you can't compare apples to apples between New York City versus Raleigh in terms of um you know what is a forty thousand dollar budget or what is a hundred thousand dollar budget look like and and like childcare you know childcare is probably double uh, what it is here um, you know here it's six to twelve hundred dollars per month twelve hundred being like the gold plated childcare and I've heard horror stories that it's it's uh it can be double that in new york city oh yes <laughs> it's definitely adds up and can be very expensive okay and so now that you're retired so you and your wife are both retired and how are you drawing on your income so i know you were putting a lot of money away in pre-tax retirement 
accounts. Are you drawing on that money now or are you making money now in retirement in other ways? So we're drawing, we're making money now in retirement in other ways, but the original plan which has has been has failed in the best way ever, uh, making more money now. Um, but originally we had about three hundred three hundred fifty thousand dollars saved up in just a taxable brokerage account. So it's the kind you know you can sell sell some stock, pull it out, spend it, um, and just the amount that we were planning on spending was closer to like thirty two thirty three thousand per year. We've upped the budget since then just because we have all you know our, our portfolio has gone up and we have this side income now. But we had about 10 years of living expenses in this taxable brokerage account we were going to be living off of, um, spending that down and then doing some 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 tax work in the background to be able to access our tax deferred savings, our IRA, 401k, that sort of thing. I won't jump into it too much, but it's worth mentioning the Roth IRA conversion ladder. That's what was going to happen in the background and is happening some right now in the background. Uh, that's converting IRA, traditional IRA assets into Roth assets. Five years after you convert it, you can pull the money out uh, tax-free, penalty-free. So that was how we were going to get access to that money. We're still doing that in a more limited basis now just to, man- just to manage our tax uh, burden to keep it very, very low. But we have, uh, over the past few years, um, so I started my blog, um, rootofgood.com. Started it, um, you know, threw up some ads, kind of didn't know what I was doing, just started posting some stuff, and it really took off. And so it turned into this a pretty big success story so far. I mean, relative success story. I'm, I'm internet famous. I'm doing air quotes right now. I'm internet. Um, yeah. But but it's you know it's I don't know it gets fifty or hundred thousand hits per month or something like that. But but I monetized it and it makes uh, thirty thousand dollars per year roughly, uh, a little bit more than that maybe. So so it's turned into a pretty viable side hustle, especially when you look at our expenses. I mean, it it it, it almost covers our expenses most years. So we're and then we get dividend income from the portfolio, uh, maybe about eight thousand dollars from the taxable account. So you know thirty thousand from my blog, uh, eight thousand in dividends from my taxable account. So we're pretty much set in terms of our income matches just about exactly what we're spending right now. So we haven't really had to uh, to sell anything to support our our living expenses. And, uh, and so I'm also moving a little bit from traditional IRA to uh, Roth IRA, the, those Roth IRA conversions in the background. You know, as long as I can keep my taxes low enough, um, I, I'm moving some each year that way just just for, to get a long-term tax picture to look better, to get more, more assets into that Roth space. What I find fascinating is the fact that you are making money in retirement enough, almost enough basically enough to sustain your lifestyle. And I find it fascinating because a lot of times, you know, people are working in jobs that they don't love, that's barely paying for their expenses. And they're on this like rat race or in the rat race on this hamster wheel. And a lot of times the people that I've spoken to that have retired, they're making either more money than they did when they were working and or the quality of their life is so much better that it just seems like if more of us um, had that, car- not only the courage, but the means to be able to retire early, that we would actually be living more rich, richer lives. Like we wouldn't need to depend on a paycheck because all the skills that it took to retire early, you'd be able to craft that into your new side hustle or your new career and make money. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think you hit it right there on the head when you said the skills that it takes to retire early. Uh, in my experience from talking to 
probably hundreds of early retirees or those that are almost there. Um, it, it's, it's people that are, are, you know, it's not lazy people. Like I, I used to think maybe I'm just lazy. I mean, I am lazy some, but, uh, but it's, it's, it's more like, it's just efficient focus where, you know, you, you're focused on this goal. You, you know how to reach the goal. You're make you're, you know, you're doing well enough in your career to be able to advance through the ranks and, and make money, make more money. You're smart enough to be able to save money and invest it and have it work for you. And, you know, eventually it's whether it's 33 or 35 or 40 or some people, you know, in their 20s, I don't know. Uh, but w- even if you're 50, um, you know, you're, you're building that wealth for yourself. You're building it up. And it, and it takes, you know, it takes perseverance. It takes sticking with the plan for a decade or two or more. And I think those same people, you, you translate those skill sets into some other creative endeavor uh, after you quit working full time. Even, even if you're working it, you know a few hours per week. Um, it's something that it, a lot of times it just, it, it turns into something that ends up making money and, you know, it can be in the arts, creative stuff, people that get into woodworking, sculpture, um, you know, website design, graphic design, become a novelist. It's, It's just, I mean, it's fascinating to watch, watch what happens when people don't have to work at a nine to five job anymore. Uh, they get into some kind of a creative, uh, creative or productive pursuit that they actually enjoy not doing it 40 or 50 hours a week, but doing it, you know, on a very limited basis, um, just to have something that they call their own, something to creatively express themselves. And that's, that's sort of, you know, what I look at my, my own blog. It's like this, it's my little baby where I've created it and I've created this community and interact with people. And, you know, I've met a lot of people in real life through it. And so it's, it's, it's definitely been, um, you know, yes, something that I've monetized that's turned into a, a, a profitable business, but it's, it's, um, it, you know, f- to me, it's a lot more than that. Yeah. And I mean, and like you said, you mentioned that it might, it might take a decade, a decade or two to make this happen. So, you know, relatively for a lot of people, they want, I know I want. So my goal is to retire in six years or less or to at least not be dependent on my corporate job where I can step away and do what you're doing. Basically, it's just, you know, following my talents and my dreams to make money. And I feel like um, a lot of times you, people can get impatient, even myself on the journey. But it it is a journey that you have to you have no choice but to be patient on because you're building wealth and you, you're going to have to save over time. And I really just think that's important because it didn't it didn't it didn't happen overnight for you. It it took a, you know it took ten years about ten years right. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was ten years. Yep. Right. So I guess depending on where you are on your journey, if you're listening, and if, especially if you're just starting, because I have listeners who are just starting, who are even still in debt that want to reach financial independence and retire early. So the journey might be a little bit longer, um, depending on their income and their expenses, but. It it really it it really just just matters on where you start because we all have different starting points, but just to stay focused because if you keep doing it, if you keep investing and saving and if you're focused, it will eventually happen. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. It's and really, you know, what you said, your starting point. And so if you're there's probably somebody like right now listening that's you know, thirty five, forty years old. I'm I'm thirty seven. Um so I'm thinking about someone that might be in my position. And they're, they're, they're kind of just now realizing, oh, you know, it's an epiphany. A light bulb went off. They're like, oh, I, I could do this too, you know. If I figure out my expenses, if I have debt, get rid of debt, and I could actually start saving, um, you know, the first $100 you put into your 401k. And then you put another $100 in there next month. 
And, you know, even if it's just a hundred dollars, it's a starting point and you, you've got to start somewhere and, you know, you, you may not be able to do it in 10 years. You may not have an engineer's salary. You may be doing something that just doesn't pay as well. Or, you know, you're in New York City and it's just it costs more to live there and you have family there and you, you don't want to move away. Um, that's that's something that, you know, we all kind of we're at different points and we have different starting points. But I, I think it, it, as long as you are, are working into the positive where you're either paying down debt and you eventually eliminate it or you're, you know, you're debt free and you start saving and accumulating more money, it's just a matter of time before you either reach financial independence or, you know, worst case, maybe you, maybe you don't retire early, but maybe you retire normal age. But at least if you, I've said before, uh, if you aim to save a million dollars and retire early and you fail miserably, you probably still have a hundred thousand dollars, you know, and, and that's, that's better than, you know, going into retirement at 65 with a hundred thousand dollars is way better than going into retirement with a hundred thousand dollars of debt. Right. That's such that's so that's such good gems. And I think this is a good spot spot to just um kinda tell people where they can find you because I really just want to thank you again for coming on. But your journey, like I said, I found it to be very relatable, especially with myself having kids and just with, you know, having a spouse that's on board. But you know, just having that journey to reach financial freedom. It, it's just definitely something where I love talking to people who have done it because it's one thing to talk about that I want to do it, but I love bringing people on who have done it, who can share their experience. So I just want to thank you so much for coming on. And yes, please let everyone know where they can find you and reach out if they want to get more in touch. Yeah, uh, look me up on the internet. I have a blog at rootofgood.com. Uh, that's rootofgood.com. And I'm also on Facebook and Twitter if you want to connect through there. And uh, links for that, they're all on the blog, rootofgood.com. So uh, come on by and see me. All right. Thank you so much, Justin. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Justin, so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your journey and all these great nuggets. I mean, I hope you enjoyed that if you're listening, because Justin did really share some key components to what it takes to reach financial independence. He talked about delaying gratification and planning, you know, planning ahead, um, even with traveling and how, you know, maybe not going somewhere for a weekend or a week. If you delay that gratification for a couple years, if you're planning properly, you can take more time and enjoy yourself and spend less money. I also like the fact that he talked about even if you set your goal of saving a million dollars or retiring at, let's say, 40 or 45, and you fail, you do not hit a million dollars, you do not retire as early as you'd like. But guaranteed, if you're on this path, if you're trying to make as much money as you can, if you are being smart with your expenses, if you are saving and investing, you will hit a goal. And so it's like if you fail, the end goal is that you saved 100000 200000 or you retired at 49 or 53 instead of the standard retirement age of 65 or 59 and a half. That's good. That That's a win. And I just like that he pointed that out. So also what he said that I thought was interesting is that, look, look, it's going to take you a while. It's going to take dedication. It's going to take perseverance, which we talk about on this podcast a lot. As you're on this journey, just be patient with it and keep going. Again, if you want the episode show notes, you can go to journeytolaunch.com slash episode 15. And as I always say, please rate, review and subscribe wherever you're listening. And especially if you're listening in iTunes, leave that review. 
Also, the Wealth Manual is on sale. You can go to journeytolaunch.com slash manual. And then last thing is if you want to join me and a bunch of other journeyers on their way to financial freedom, come on over and join us in our Facebook group. So we are at journeytolaunch.com slash community, or you can go to Facebook and just type in Journey to Launch and our group should pop up. So I hope to see you over in the group if you're not already in there. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'll talk to you next week. 